0: This is WMPG, my name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio. Today is part of our ongoing series about incarceration, and will be part two of my conversation with Bobby Paisant, who is currently an inmate at the Maine State Prison and a hospice volunteer there. Last week in part one, we spoke about his conviction for aggravated assault that landed him in prison, and also about what it was that inspired him to become a hospice volunteer, taking care of his fellow inmates who are dying in prison. So here is part two of my conversation with Bobby Payson. It sounds like you do a real hybrid between almost direct personal care and some of the more what I think of as sort of more traditional hospice work, like really listening and being present. And I know one of the traditional services that hospice offers is like a life review, enabling people to really reflect on their life. Do you do that with the people that are dying?
1: Yes, uh, we what we try to do is we try to let them lead, and we follow. But we, um, when, they, when they give us the openings, um, we, we try to take advantage of them and, and to encourage them to, um, to share uh, about memories, um, about their fears, and, and about the things that, 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 that make them feel good. And you know, we, don't, we don't try to run from anything. Um, with, with our clients. Uh, we don't feel that's productive and or beneficial to them.
0: I know in my own training what, what I was told was you can't really help someone go there unless you go there yourself. And when you say like to run from something and so we were encouraged to really face our own demons and work through our
1: own issues.
0: Has that been part of your training to, to look at the places of, of things that you might run from inside yourself so that you can help other people not do that?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, what we call it is being present and understanding what being present really means. It, it, it means not just being there as a witness to what someone else is going through it, but you're actually you're, you're, you're assisting them on that journey. You're walking the journey with them.
0: So do you have an example of that? Like, I don't know if you can tell me a story, keeping the identities private, but okay. of what it would mean to really be
1: present with someone in something like that. Okay, um, for myself, right off the hand, I can't quite remember right off, but I'll tell you a story about, um, and um, he, he shares it with everyone. One of my uh, workers, fellow workers, volunteers in here, Steve, Steve Carpenter, um, one of the people that he was working with with hospice, right was suffering from dementia. And um, what happened was is that the person thought they were drowning and they and they vocalized that. They said, "I'm drowning, I'm drowning and And Steve uh, you know the easy thing for a lot of people because they don't get it is no, you're not drowning, you're all right." And that's and so many people that's the way they communicate they want to they want everything quick you know and they want to and they want to tell people you know what they are or are not experiencing and what steve did which is very well it's not classic that's for sure but 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 it's representative of what we want to do is he he he, he cradled the man and he said i got you says you're not going to drown, I got you, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let go. And, 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 and what we've taught each other through classes and stuff is when people are going through those things, our job is not to tell them anything about their situation to tell them that their pain isn't real, to tell them their experience isn't real. Our job is to be present, is to go there with them. And then when you go there with them, then you might be able to tease them out of that.
0: How did the man respond to it?
1: He looked up at him and he smiled. Hmm. And he was quiet.
0: Hmm. That's a beautiful story. I think maybe we all want something like that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. To feel like you can trust somebody, that they have your needs, your interest, you know, in, in their soul. You know, not to try to correct you or anything, just to just to be there and to support you and to and to love you.
0: So striking, because of course our images of prison life don't include <laughs> <laughs> they don't include the word love, right? They don't. They include like, I think before I started doing this series, mm. I thought that to be in prison, probably especially a men's prison, yeah. I was imagining that it was a really a lot about. Portraying a tough image, so no one right. would mess with you, I mean I think that's what I was imagining I would have to do if I was a prisoner here and is that true in other and is that true in some parts of life here or in
1: oh in absolutely a, that that's true in the majority of it I mean that's what we have to struggle against at all times but that's but it's the same thing in life and when you use the word portray, I think about art and I think of something that's not really reality, you know and um and, and that's, what, that's what people do. They, they, they put on these, um, these disguises, these coats that represent I'm this, I'm that, don't mess with me. But what it is, and I can say from firsthand knowledge, a lot of that comes from just our own fear, our own insecurities. You know? um, the best way to keep you from bullying me or pressing up on me is if I act like an alpha male and I'm totally aggressive towards you, put you on your heels, and that's how a lot of people act in a prison environment. And then they they attach themselves to other people who feel the very same way, and you know, and that's how gangs and and and, and these comrades or That's that's how that happens. But really, the truth of the matter is, is when you break us down to our basic selves. We're a bunch of scared people that that really have struggled getting a grip on how to make it in the world out there and how we're making it in here, where we have to be here.
0: And with the training that you've had with hospice and with your experiences in being present, do Mm. you feel like it's changed how you are day to day in the prison?
1: Yes. I mean, my story, I mean, doesn't begin and end with hospice. I just got my um, associate's degree, you know, from uh, UMA at Augusta, um, like eight classes away from my bachelor's. Um, And so through learning about this bigger world and through actually getting some knowledge so I can actually have, you know, rooted opinions about things rather than just some basic... uh, and know, prejudice or a viewpoint that, that I can't back up with anything substantial because I don't know anything. Um, through my education process, through hospice, through meeting people like Candace Powell, uh, Doris Buffett, who sponsored— Doris? Doris Buffett is— um, Warren Buffett's sister. I think everybody knows who Warren Buffett
0: is. I have heard of the man, yes.
1: Okay, well, Doris Buffett is a s- sister. She's a philanthropist and, 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 and a godsend to humanity. Um, what she does is she sponsors the college program here so that the men who are part of the Sunshine Lady Foundation, which is her foundation, get to attend college for free.
0: I didn't know that because I was struck that a number of the men in the group yeah. have just gotten their BA, but it's because of her generosity.
1: It's, it's not a federal pra- program or no, a state program. No, no, no. It's it's strictly from her. She's uh, done this in one, maybe two other states. Uh, she's just um, she's one of those people that that it's um, it's a blessing to say that you've got to meet her once in life, let alone several times. So.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what are you getting your BA in? what's your, What's your major?
1: It's uh, my degree is going to be in liberal arts with a focus on Spanish.
0: Hmm. So, you said that your your story doesn't begin and end with hospice, and I'm curious if you'd tell me more about your story. So, you came in, you came back in in 2005, is that right? Right. Yeah. And it sounds like you've had your own struggles here um, with security, and. How, now, how do you understand that? Like what what was that about for you?
1: Part of it is the natural course of things growing up. I'm 46 years old now. I started um, I did my first adult bid when I was uh, 16. And so I um, growing up in the system. Uh, I went through a lot of time being angry and anti-system, anti-anything authority. And, uh, and that, that was how I thought and dealt with life for a long time. Uh, you get to a point where you have to, if you're allowed to really see yourself, you, you get to a point where you have to stop making excuses about the things that are happening in your life and own that you're a participant. And um, I just got to that point, and and, and got tired of um, of of doing time, uh, of um, of not being able to experience uh, being a parent, um, going to graduations, meeting new and interesting people, uh, without having the setting of walls, you know. So I just um, part of it is just. Getting to that point, it's so um, 12-step, but getting sick and tired of being sick and tired. And
0: and do you think anyone else can help you get to that point? Like, I'm interested. I'd love to hear your thought on this. As a clinician, because you're talking about a profound turning point in a person's Mm -hmm. life. You know, where they decide, all right, I'm going to own my stuff here. And do you think there's a role that someone else can offer in helping someone get to that place, or do you think it really has to come from inside?
1: I, I believe that um, you get inspired by people. Um, and, that's, and that's what helps you on that road to self-discovery and to change. I don't think somebody you know that has a degree, that has a certain amount of technical knowledge, necessarily is capable of of helping a person see themselves. When, especially when the person who's the client, um, looks at that person as an authoritative person, and there is no personal connection, um, one of the things that has made Candace, for example, um, so successful here at this prison is because she's so personable. And, and she lets you into her life. And, and for me, if I was ever um, to pursue f- to higher education um, and, and get into counseling and stuff, that's the approach that I would take. Um, I'd want to make connections with people. And I'd want to inspire them to be able to think outside the box, you know. And I I don't think I'd be successful at doing that if I just came at them like, I'm, all right, tell me your thoughts.
0: Or like I know something that you don't, a- like exactly. teaching you something.
1: Exactly. People don't yeah. respond well to that No. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> I've <all>. observed this. <laughs> yes. Following up on that, I want to tell you a story of my own if I can. Oh, please. Which is... Uh, Before I went to med school, I used to work as a chaplain in a hospital, and I worked with death and dying. It was my interest also, and I used to work on an oncology floor, so I was working with all adults who had cancer, and I Mm -hmm. also worked on an HIV floor. And this was in 1990, and it was when the HIV population was still mostly gay men. It was really before IV drugs was on the scene, at least in terms of HIV, and. I had this idea, I was young, (laughs) I had this idea that as people are approaching death, you know, they would have these incredibly meaningful, intimate conversations with their family about their dying, and Mm. that's what I was hoping for. And what I found is on the oncology floor, well over half of the people I worked with died without ever telling their family that they knew they were dying, without ever talking about what was Mm. going on in the room, which I found pretty... I was crushed, actually. I was so disappointed. But what I found on the HIV floor was that almost 100% of the guys there that were dying had very intimate deaths where they talked to their partner, they talked to their friends, they knew they were dying, it was in the room, it was very Mm. authentic. And I was fascinated by this difference. And I, I started to wonder whether the difficulty of coming out, the difficulty of having to face an identity that's not that's judged, if there was some gift in that in terms of being more real in the world.
1: Mm.
0: And so I found myself wondering if, there was, if that was true in prison too. If there's something about kind of having to face yourself or having to face being here, if you think that changes the way people face dying. Like have to face that cold hard reality.
1: I think that's part of it. Um whether you're, you're actively dying or, or whether you understand that at some point you're going to die, I think people people want to know that the people that they're surrounding themselves around really, really care about them. I mean, we have uh bros that we hang out with and stuff like that, but it, it's almost kind of like these connections are made f- for the convenience of two different parties because people are alone but the truth of the matter is is you know people want to be closer to their family people want to be closer to loved ones or, or, or be able to experience uh, making a connection with someone that could be a loved one um, and those are the things that don't happen here and so every night when people go to bed here and, 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 and either you're looking at the uh, ceiling or you're looking at the um, the, the bottom of the bunker above you, you know, there's, that's when you're really, at those moments, you're really in touch with what's, wh- wh- where your fears are and, and, and what you want to do. And people don't want to die in prison. Nobody wants to die in prison. And nobody wants to die, um, not just being alone, but let me personalize this a little bit. Not only do I not want to die in prison, But I don't want to die with this stigma that that is associated with my being in prison. I don't want people to say, um, yeah, Bobby Payson could've, should've done all this, but he chose to be this instead. I don't want the um, actions of my past to dictate how I'm perceived for the rest of my life. I want the things that I'm doing today to, to, to weigh in on that, you know, and I and I don't feel like if I continue my life in prison that that really happens in an adequate manner. I feel like people, because you're locked away, people don't see you, they don't, you know, it's not everyday um, radio stations come in that ask us to talk to them. That doesn't happen on an everyday basis. And so we don't, we're not given a, a platform or a format to share who we are, you know, and and so people out there, a lot of people who are suffering because they were victimized by people like myself, you know, they have that one view and nobody's out there saying, hey, there's more to it than that, you know, while at the same time acknowledging their grief and their pain, you know, because I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I say. I own what I did, and and, uh, and my victim, and uh, and I made sure I said this to him in court. Did not have that coming to him. There was, n- you know, he didn't deserve that, um, and I live with that. You know, because if someone knows me and they get to know me when I'm not high, when I'm not doing making bad decisions, they know that I'm a very caring person that I, and that I want to add something to your life. I don't want to take away, and so to. To have become that person that, 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 was, that was stealing and taking away from people and neglecting the person who I am, my core self, you know, you know that, that eats me up. That eats me up. And, you know, and, um, and I can't say sorry enough times. So what do I do? I think about it and I say, okay, well, moving forward, because I have to move forward, what do I do? And what I do is I make a decision on, OK, I have to get a better relationship with myself. That's going to enable me to get a better relationship with other people. And, and, I, need, and I need to do things differently. And, that, and, that, and that's what I've tried to do. you know. And in the process of doing that, I've been re- rewarded with such great experiences, um, such as being a part of hospice by being able to serve other people, by um, getting to know great people from all over f- with all different types of professions. So, you uh, know.
0: I'm, I'm very touched by your story, partly because as a psychiatrist, I work with people who've often been victims, you know, who mm-hmm. may have trauma histories. And so often, one of the consequences of trauma is that the person blames themselves, yeah. right? Our whole right. culture blames a victim. And they'll they'll take inside like, how was this my fault? What did I do? If only I had done this differently, I should have been able to prevent it. Right. So for you, to know that intuitively and make sure that you told the person in court, mm. you didn't do anything wrong.
1: Right.
0: You helped that person so much.
1: Well, I would I would hope. I I also gave him a letter because I know in the. In the context of court, being in a courtroom, um, I mean, I'm about ready to be sentenced. To the to them, they may feel like, well, he's just saying that, hoping the judge shows leniency, you know. So I, I gave him a letter and I asked him to read it at home later on, you know, after everything's all said and done, and, and he'll know my heart. And whether he did or not, I don't know. Um, I just know that I made that effort. And, that's, and in the end, that's all I can do is control me, you know, and hope, you know, that um, that, that that particular person um, finds the healing that they need from this particular situation that, that I put them through. Um, now, going into the prison, and it, it's funny you say the word victim. I see so many people that that try to identify with victims by saying they're victims themselves. So many people in here, oh poor me, poor me, this is happening to me, you know. And um, part of my journey of, of of real self-discovery and real change is is taking control of my own life and saying no, no, no. I may have been a victim because I victimized myself, you know, and and so when I step up and say, hey, listen, I'm going to stop being a victim, I'm going to stop suffering, and and I have control of that, Um, you know, so many people don't do that yet.
0: And I want to make sure I understand what you mean. So when you say, I don't want to, you know, I have control of that, I made myself a victim, what do you mean? Like um, I got in here. I'm a, I'm stuck in here because of what I did. Is that what you mean?
1: Right. An attitudinal. It's an attitudinal thing. Like, oh, the cops are messing me. This. I'm always. They're, they're hassling me. Um, you know. They won't give me a break. Uh, they won't give me a paying job. You know. Um, as a prisoner, it's easy for a lot of us to to, to build ourselves up to be victims. You know, and say, poor... There's a lot
0: of deprivation here.
1: Exactly. And, you know, and and that doesn't excuse injustice when injustice happens. And and so let me be very clear about that. But I also think that that people get used to playing that card. It's like playing the race card, you know. I mean, there's a a certain point where it's like, it's all, well, what are you doing to become part of the solution instead of part of the problem, you know, and... uh, and that's what, for me, I had to do in in regards to to changing my attitude about um, staff authority, my being a victim in this place. I, I just, I just say, hey, listen, enough, enough. You know, I have more control than I'm giving myself. You know, and I have to, I have to own that. You know, and
0: has it made it easier to be here?
1: Yes, actually, it has. I mean, don't get it wrong. <laughs> I don't like being here, but I am here, and I have a philosophy that um, wherever you are, there you are. And, uh, and if I can't find a reason to smile or, or to laugh with somebody, then, then I'm, I'm just robbing myself, and I'm really wasting air.
0: This is your life?
1: This is my life.
0: I was asking, I had a chance to talk to Kevin, the new chaplain here, yes. uh, before he came in, and I was asking him what happens to the body after someone dies and whether you have a visitation or a funeral here. And he said not since he's been here. And he doesn't think there had ever been visitation here. And I'm curious, do you think it would do something for the, for the community of people who knew that guy if there was visitation after someone died in the prison?
1: Um. Yeah.
0: A chance to say goodbye, presumably.
1: Yeah, it, it's um. Anything, and, and I and I wish the, the the prison would start thinking progressive like this. Anything that allows prisoners to tap into that humanity part of themselves is a good thing. It can never be a bad thing. Um, and and. and and a lot of the men that, that, that live and die in here, for the most part, have been here for a long time, and so are, are well-known. And for the most part, their family is here. Um, yeah, to um, to offer people an opportunity to, to to go up and pay last respects, you know, e- even if it's just to go into the room and, and, and to quietly grieve and, and just... Um, I know um, my my mom just passed um, several weeks ago. I'm sorry. And uh, instead of a, in lieu of a funeral, they had an end of life service, a celebration, and um, I got to go. And I spent three hours there with family, friends, people I haven't seen in like oh my god, thirty years. And um, to be able to get that type of healing and that type of closure, that needs to be an automatic thing. You know, and, and, the, and the administration, and Augusta needs to understand that. That's the one time, uh, more than anything, when, when humanity has to rule out. Every time. Those are those poignant moments that can change how a person thinks and and what path that they're traveling on, because it's such a powerful thing.
0: Do you think that you were able to um, experience your own grief for your mom in a different way, because you've had so much training and experience now working with dying people
1: no doubt about it no doubt about it um, having worked with hospice and 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 really being forced to look at your own life and, and look at your own mortality and, and 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 see people that that some people die and their families are there you know and they get that closure many people don't
0: Something you said that really got my attention was when you said anything that we can do to really acknowledge somebody's humanity here in the prison is a good thing. And that really seems right. That seems so right. And are there other things, are there other ways that that could be happening more that you'd like to see more of or ways that people on the outside could help with that 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 you want to ask for
1: well I think we're doing a a fairly good job on the educational level because I think that allows us as individuals to to to, to see ourselves in a better light what I would like to see I mean and it's totally has nothing to do with hospice or anything but I'd like uh, I'd like to see more of an effort for victim offender mediation within the prison
0: um tell me more what you mean by that
1: face to face with a mediator a- a- and so so people can get closure uh you know um you know to me it, it, it's it's all about healing you know people get stuck it, it, no matter what their place is in life when when they can't deal with their pain when they can't process it no matter how small or how great um you know, people who might have had family members or loved ones who, whose lives were taken by others, people who've uh, had their life savings stole, people who were sexually assaulted, people, whoever. To give people an opportunity to see the people that, that have caused them that to hurt and to find some type of closure. Now, that doesn't always mean that parties will walk away you know, enamored with each other but it gives people the opportunity to find closure and to be healed so they can move forward. I would love to see that being used.
0: One of the shows we're doing in this series is on wh- what's called restorative justice, yes. where they do that. And um, so we will have a chance to talk about that oh, uh, on this series. Great. And um, I know there's a Restorative Justice Institute of Midcoast, Maine, mm-hmm. that's uh, quite involved. I also want to mention a few opportunities for other people to get involved. One is Deputy Warden Mike Tausick invited me to give the number for the prison, which is 273-5300, to call him directly. And again, it's Deputy Warden Mike Tausick because he wants a volunteer Spanish teacher And he's also interested in volunteer CBT, cognitive behavioral therapists, who might want to come in and lead groups in the prison. So if you are hearing the show and you are moved to come in and do some volunteer work in the prison, I invite you to contact him. Also, if you're interested in doing any volunteer work through uh, hospice, Candace Powell is the person who has been running this program here. She's the executive director of the Maine Hospice Council and the Center for End-of-Life Care. I've been speaking today with Bobby Payson. Thank you, Bobby. This has been really an honor to talk to you. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: I want to thank Gabe Graben for producing today's show, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.